The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Jesus, we come and we speak to you in prayer, knowing that you welcome us into your presence. You've given us promise that we will catch men, catch women, people. You intend to make all of your servants fishers of men. We come and we ask you, Lord, would you help us to, to do this? To think rightly about this? To understand it? To grow in it? To love this calling on us? To embrace it? We are weak, we have needs, uncertainties, questions. Lord, intervene in our hearts today. Lord, come into our midst, into each one of us here. And in the particular ways that we need you, would you come and would you minister to us and teach us? Particularly, Lord, help us to understand you. Your place in this mission that you've called us to. Give grace to us this morning, Lord. Father, I pray that you would commission the Spirit to illumine our minds, to make this passage clear, to help us to understand, to be changed in our thinking and in our feeling, and therefore in our acting. Lord, be here in our midst, moving, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. We sat on a ferry boat crossing the narrow strait of water that divided this massive Middle Eastern city in half. Trip across would take 20 to 25 minutes or so, and as we sat there listening to the, the low churning of the motors and the, the squawking of the many seagulls and the, the lapping of the water against the boat, we sat there and helped pass the time. I asked my friend, So tell me, how did you become a Christian? And so he began. He'd been raised a Muslim, never knowing anything different, never thinking about anything different, never wanting anything different. One day while he was in high school, his mother had crossed paths with some American service personnel who were in their country due to the first Gulf War. They'd talked just a little bit, and these folks had given her an English Bible, one of those little Gideon-sized Bibles, printed up with the American camouflage pattern on the outside that they handed out to troops going overseas. They'd given her this. She, not reading or speaking much English, gave it to her son. He was learning English and thought that he'd be interested in reading an English book, and he was. And so he kept reading it. Time passed, and she had a number of dreams. They were all a little different, but each one of them had a common theme. Her son was about to die, and a man would appear to her and say, Jesus is the only one who can save your son's life. Now, she being a Muslim... She had some concept of Jesus being a prophet. So it wasn't entirely out of left field, but it was a little odd. And so she told her son about these dreams in case they were important and it was supposed to mean something. In case it was information he needed to know. She told him. And he made note of that. More time passes. My friend goes off to college in another city. The city we were in at the moment. 
a massive city, and his life is in turmoil now as he's dealing with living away from home in a huge city, trying to figure out who he is, as many college students are, who he is personally, what he wants to do with his life, how to get around this city, and making friends. He's also still reading the Bible, and though he does not get it, it is in his second language, and it's about some spiritual things he doesn't quite understand, he does realize that it's different than Islam, and he's not sure what to make of all that. So he's wrestling in some turmoil, and one day... While he's at his campus job, working in the back, a couple of English speakers stop by looking for some information. The other folks call him out because he speaks good English by this time, pretty good English. They begin to talk. He helps them out. They agree to get together later. They talk some more. They become friends. And before long, these two English speakers are explaining to him all that he's been reading and showing him how Jesus is, in fact, the only one who can save him. As he told me this story, he reached into his bag pulled out a little bitty camouflage Bible, opened up the front cover and showed me where he had written, I trust Jesus to be my Savior, June 3rd, 1995. And as I heard that story sitting there, surrounded by this massive city, looking out at the, at the, at the skyline and seeing all the minarets from all the mosques, 16 million Muslims. And he tells me this story and shows me this page. Something at that moment struck me about Jesus bringing in his catch. June 3rd, 1995. Here in this city, this sort of thing is going on with my friend. Jesus, the Lord of the catch, is bringing in my friend. And I'm a half a world away, the day before my first anniversary. I knew exactly where I was at the time, making reservations, preparing for our anniversary. And that's what's going on in my friend's life here in this city. And he's telling me this story right now, my friend, and Jesus is telling me this story right now as nourishment, as encouragement to me. Because the reason that I'm in this country now is to try to catch some fish myself. I'm here fishing. There is a missionary looking at all of this around me. And here is evidence presented to me. Jesus catches people. He does. Look at all the facts, all the circumstances. Jesus brings in those he wants to bring in when he wants to catch them. He works out the impossible. He does the amazing. He takes a non-seeking Muslim and takes his mother and brings her across the path of a Bible that she can't read, and so she gives it to him. He teaches this non-seeking Muslim English so that he can read, motivates him to keep reading it, gives his mother dreams to encourage his reading and encourage his exploration of Jesus, takes him to this campus, gives him a job, works out the hours such that he'll be there when the two English speakers show up, develops a friendship between them, brings the answers home, reeling him in, all along the way. No human can orchestrate that. That is the work of the sovereign God saving. And he tells me that story, encouraging me to keep participating. I look out and I say, there is just absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to convince anybody here to believe this gospel. And he says to me, you're right, you can't. But look at this. I do. Trust me, keep fishing. That's what we're going to look at a little bit today. 
We're going to look at a story that actually happened that is, in a sense, an acted parable of how Jesus is the Lord over the catch. He brings in the catch, he makes it work, and he sustains the fishermen in the process. Let me read the passage in John chapter 21, verse 14 verses. John 21, 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. We don't have the exact details about when this happened. Both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus had told them that he was going to rendezvous with them back up in Galilee to the north. So sometime after the events where Jesus meets up with Thomas that we just read about in the previous chapter, sometime after that, they go back up to the north to the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, which was the home region of many. Then they go up there to meet with Jesus, and they're, they're waiting for him there. And this is some of what happens up there around the Sea of Galilee. Verse 1 introduces the story in a particular way. Jesus revealed himself. This is how he revealed himself. That's the front end. And then the back end, verse 14, this was the way he was revealed. That frames this passage with the idea of revealing. This is a revelation of Jesus here. So as we're looking through here, we need to be asking, what is being revealed about Jesus here? What am I seeing? What's on display about him? It's kind of in the back of our minds. So this group of disciples, and following Peter's lead, they decided to go fishing. Evidently, those of them who had been fishermen before still had access to some equipment, so they go out at night, as was the custom. They probably need to catch something to eat, maybe to sell and make a little income. They go fishing, and they fail. And just as the day was breaking from the shadows on the shore, coincidentally, the Sea of Tiberias is a great big sea, but coincidentally, right near where they are, just 100 yards offshore, somebody calls out to them from the shadows, Don't have any fish, do you, children? 
It's not exactly insulting to call them children. It's kind of like boys or guys or lads. But it does expect a negative answer. He knows they failed. Don't have anything, do you, boys? Nope. Throw the net over on the right side. You'll catch some there. You can almost hear the seven grumbling men. We're working all night. Why don't you come out here? I've got some other idea about what I can throw over the right side. You can kind of hear that in their minds there. This kind of unsolicited advice is not always very welcome. But they heed it, perhaps out of desperation. Throw the net over the side. This would be a great big net. They throw it over and they drag it and then pull it up and they'd catch stuff in it like that. They throw the net over the side and suddenly it's teeming with fish. They're writhing all over the place. They pull it up. They see them in there, and it's a huge load. They can't get it into the boat, and now they're struggling with it. Suddenly, they're, they're overcome by it. They've been kind of lazy all night. Nothing's been happening, and now there's a huge catch, and they're trying to pull it in. And looking at this, where did all this come from? Where did all these fish come from? How could they be right here when we miss them? Who is that guy? Where is that guy? And John looks, puts two and two, it's the Lord, Peter. And Peter says, it's the Lord, and jumps into the water. And now... What was hard for seven men is harder for six, and they're wrestling with it, trying to get it at least fastened to the boat so they can drag it along. And it's Jesus, supposedly. I can't see him over there, but Peter just jumped over the side. It's probably a frantic situation. You know how it is when you've been doing something for hours and hours and hours, and it's just gone one way, and then suddenly it's the extreme opposite, and you're kind of constantly two steps behind. They're fighting with this load, distracted by evidently Jesus being here. Peter's gone. It's crazy. They eventually fasten to the boat at least and get the boat into shore. And when they get out on the land, what they find there is a charcoal fire already prepared for them with food cooking on it. Peter's standing there dripping wet. The last time Peter stood around a charcoal fire in the book of John, he was betraying Jesus. Here now he is, standing at a charcoal fire, talking to him. Jesus is crouched down there, maybe squeezing a little bit of lemon on the fish and dusting it off with some salt. It smells so good. Especially if you've been working all night on a lake. Frying fish. And Jesus looks at up at them, go get some more. Go get some of those fish you just caught. I'm going to cook you guys up a nice breakfast. They go get the fish and they bring it. They sit there and they watch him prepare it. And all the while, the disciples are, are a mix of, of sheepishness and, and amazement. They, they kind of want to ask him, is it really you? But they know it's really him. They, they can't ask him. That would be insulting. But they kind of want to know. But they don't dare. They're watching him cook, and they can see the holes. They know it's him. This might seem a little odd to us that they're kind of wrestling with this a little bit. But if, if you could see somebody that you'd known had died and then you could watch him cook breakfast for you, that would be odd. This is the third time they've seen him, but it's still something they're trying to get used to. He has been raised from the dead. He's right here making me breakfast. This is amazing. It's Jesus who's done all this. Jesus right here doing this for us now. The third time they'd seen him after he'd been raised. What's revealed about him here? This is a, a revelation here. What's revealed about him? 
Well, first, obviously, it is revealed that he has been bodily raised. I don't want to skip over that too quickly. That's how the, the passage ends, with them reckoning with the resurrection. He has bodily come back from the dead and is alive again. That's clearly one of the things being revealed. But we've talked about that several times already. And I want to move on to something else that's revealed. Because it says he was revealed in this way. There's something about this revealing of him that's kind of interesting. So let me put it in, in a sentence here. And I'm using the, the fishing analogy because this is all about fish and fishing in this passage. Here's a sentence which is the main point for today. Jesus is Lord of the catch. What's revealed about him here? That Jesus is Lord of the catch. So trust him, depend on him, turn to him, obey him, follow him, go fishing with him. He's the Lord of the catch, or if you want to use another metaphor, the harvest. The harvest of fish. There is a great harvest out there. We've all been called to it, sent to it, if you're a Christian. And Jesus is the one who reigns over all of that, who is sovereign over every bit of it. He is the prime sent one. He's in charge of it all. He's the Lord of it. This passage brings out, I think, two points related to that, two implications of his lordship over the catch. One kind of about the catch itself, what makes it work, and one about the fishermen, us. We're talk about these two points here. We'll start with the first one. More about the catch. Here's the first point. Jesus enables effective, fruitful fishing. Jesus enables effective, fruitful fishing. It's his power that makes this work. And just to be clear about it, it's not enabled in the sense of we catch 10 fish without him and we're twice as effective with him, we catch 20. It's not 10 to 20, it's 0 to 153. It's a complete, absolute difference. So when I say that he enables, I mean he's the only one that makes anything happen. Jesus. We must remember this and hope in it and depend on it. We've been sent on a mission, brothers and sisters. We've been talking about this a little bit recently, have we not? John's bringing it up here repeatedly. We've been sent on a mission to carry the message of Christ to the corners of the globe, everywhere. Everywhere on your street and in your workplace. All your circles of friends. To carry this message out there. A message first that begins with, with loss, sin and condemnation, guilt before a holy God. Not so that we can boast in that or gloat in it, or rub people's noses in it, by no means, but so that we can set up the good news, that's bad news, we can set up the good news about Christ and forgiveness and hope, wrath removed, restoration of relationship, humanity restored. That's the message that we are sent out to carry everywhere. But look around. Man, this is a daunting mission. There are over 6 billion people in the world today. Most of them, the vast majority of them, don't know Christ. Over a billion of them live in a predominantly atheistic country, China. Another billion live in a predominantly Hindu country, India. By birth rate, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and by far the most militant. 
the most hostile towards Christ in many countries in the Middle East and Africa. Europe is awash in religious apathy and atheism, relativism. Central and South America know better, and here in the United States, 300 million people have largely become a mix of all of that. Look around. This should be obvious. We're never going to get hard numbers on this, but by far, the majority of this country, the majority of this valley does not know Christ genuinely. And from our eyes, has little interest in knowing Christ genuinely. Into that world, we've been sent like sheep among wolves. Jesus is really clear in chapters 15 and 16. You are to go out and make me an issue in this world. And by the way, the world's not going to like that very much. He uses the word hate repeatedly. The world's going to be strongly opposed to you as you carry this message out there. They're going to persecute you, and they will not like to hear it. Good luck with that, though. And if you need any help, I'll be upstairs in bed asleep. But don't worry, I'll be back in a few thousand years to check up on you. Is that what he said? No. Of course not. He sent us out, but he has more to say about that. He confirmed his resurrection in chapter 20, throughout that whole chapter. Sent us out in chapter 20. And then comes this passage right here, chapter 21. And where it is and what it is, is is interesting to note. We've talked before about how different writers of Gospels emphasize different things, and you can tell what they're getting at by what they say, where they say it. A very similar story, different story, but a very similar thing happened earlier in their ministry, three years before. Luke talks about it in chapter 5. John didn't even mention that one. He doesn't want to distract us from this one that he writes about right here at this point. Right after the official commissioning, I send you out. He gives us this enacted parable that reveals to us Jesus' sovereign role in this new fishing enterprise. Shows us that He, Jesus, is the one who enables fruitful, effective fishing. By His power, by His leading, by His direction, His timing, You go out, you listen closely to me, you cast where I tell you, when I tell you, how I tell you, and you will bring in a massive catch, and not a single one will be lost. Trust me. You see that here. By yourselves, what do you catch? Nothing. Trying to make that really clear. I'm sending you out, listen to me, you'll catch fish. Without me, you won't. Can do it in unpredictable ways. They didn't think there was any fish there, but it will happen. You know this. We've talked about this before. It's a very famous verse in John 15 Apart from me, you can do nothing. Probably most of us here know that. Why is it important to keep this in mind? It's critical to keep in mind because if we don't, we veer off track. If, if it's not up to Jesus, If Jesus is the one who enables us, if it's not by his power, what's left? Me. Us. You kind of fall into something that my basketball coach used to say way back. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Trying to help us take ownership for things. That's the wrong way to go in this enterprise. If it's meant to be, it's up to him. And if you forget that, if we forget that, 
a whole host of mission-killing problems arise. You can kind of break them into two general camps. If we leave Jesus off to this side and it becomes up to me, two general things can happen to us. See which one of these camps you kind of fall into. First camp says, it's up to me. Wow, look at the size of this mission. If it's up to me, there's just no way it's going to happen. I quit. I'm going to stop throwing the net in. I'm going home. I'm going to get a new line of work or something. This is not going to work. I don't have it in me. I don't know all the answers. I don't have the power. It's not, not my personality. Is that you? Maybe you don't want to admit that you've quit. But are you fishing? Are, are you throwing the net in? Not saying, is, are you catching anything, but are you fishing? Are you throwing the net in and seeking to interact with non-Christians around you? Seeking to build relationships with people? Looking for opportunities to talk to them? Are you or are you not? There's a whole bunch of reasons you might not be. One, one for me is that, frankly, I'm too preoccupied with myself sometimes to care about other people. If that's you, repent. I'm trying. Repenting repeatedly. But it could be something right here that, you're, frankly, you're intimidated. You're afraid. You look at the big, bad, lost world and say, I better quit. Is that you? Are you in this camp? You're thinking, it's up to me, and I'm going to fail, so I better not engage. That kills the mission. Likewise, the other camp kills the mission too. It's, it's still rooted in the it's up to me, but it's kind of the opposite reaction. There's a huge mission. Wow, I better, get, I better get cracking on this. And this group of people kind of cinches up their belt and gets to work, thinking it's up to me. They get to work. Got to get a lot of stuff done. But invariably what comes from that is human effort, human-based philosophies, a human-based gospel changes things to make it more palatable. Are you engaged? I mean, are you fishing like crazy in your own effort? Is that you? Ask yourself, what's my prayer life like? This might help you identify if this is you. Are you praying like crazy for lost people? Are you asking, God, would you come and intervene in so-and-so's life? Because if you don't, nothing will happen. Is that your prayer? Is that how you pray? Do you pray it? If not, if you've left prayer over here and you're engaging with people, I think subtly what you believe is, this is not critical. This is. This is the decisive factor. What I say, how I engage with them, what I do, not what he does. Look at yourself. Do you pray? Do you pray earnestly? Do you pray consistently? Do you pray as if God doesn't answer, nothing will happen? Either one of those two camps comes from the it's up to me mentality. And we don't fight against that by saying, I need to pray more, or I need to throw the net in more, I need to fish more. We fight against that by saying, it's up to him. God help me. Change my mentality so that I realize without you, I catch nothing. Help me to believe that. And then you pray more, throw the net in more, etc. 
Christ must remain central to our picture of how fishing happens. Using that metaphorically, of course. To how people are engaged effectively and accurately. How people meet Christ effectively and accurately. How they come into the kingdom effectively and accurately. He must remain central to that. Jesus is the one who makes for effective, fruitful fishing. That's the first implication of him being the Lord over it. He's the Lord over it. It's his deal. It's his game. He's the one who makes it work. The second implication is much more personal. It's about us, you and me. This comes especially from the second half of the passage where he sits them down and, and feeds them. Let me put this in a sentence. Jesus sustains the fishermen. He sustains them. He gives them what they need. It's the heart of 9 to 13. They've been working all night. They come to shore. They find food waiting for them, which he just provided for them. He sees a need. He acts. He meets it. That's not theologically very fancy, but it's true. It's right there. Jesus is the one who provides for our concrete physical needs while we're walking through this life as fishermen. If you're at a situation in your life right now where you're looking at, I hear you talking about this reaching the lost and carrying the, the message of Christ to the ends of the globe, but I don't know if I'm going to make it to the next paycheck. I mean, it'd be nice to worry about Mongolia, but quest i got a Quest bill right here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to the grocery store. Or, it'd be, it'd be great to worry about reaching the Muslim world, but I have cancer. I'm concerned about that, obviously. A whole host of, of issues that are very personal and real and concrete to us. Jesus, this should be an encouragement to you, Jesus is not so lost in the big picture, reaching the world for Christ, etc., that he overlooks breakfast. Food on the table. Very concrete. You need to eat, he provides it. And to put a little finer point on that, he provides all of it. Everything you have. Apart from him, you have nothing. He provides everything that we have. They didn't have a few fish and he added a few more. Everything. To be sure, we have to exert ourselves to think, plan, work, shop wisely, save, etc. Those are our responsibilities and we do have a role in this. They are the fishermen. They had to throw the net over. They had to haul it in. He says, the fish that you caught. We have a role. We have a responsibility in this. But isn't it clear that he provided the fish? I mean, obviously. He cooked it. He served it. He's behind it. It's him. We realize that, but the heart struggle comes when you've been fishing all night and you're wondering, is there going to be any breakfast or not? Is there going to be the physical, tangible thing that I need? Is it going to be there or not? He's brought you into his family. He has obligated himself to meet your needs. He will. Your needs. Maybe not your wants. Maybe not exactly when you'd like it, but he will meet your needs. Can answer that heart struggle with, yes, I know he will meet my need. But there's another heart struggle when you have everything that you possibly need. There's a struggle there to remember that he is the one who met it. He provided it for you. 
probably a majority of us need to think in this camp because a majority of us here have what we need. Be reminded, he provided all of it. Using the Simpsons fan, but one particular episode, Bart Simpson said grace and said, Dear Lord, thanks for nothing because we earned all this ourselves. Amen. We wouldn't think of praying like that. But do you think like that? Everything that you have came from him. Hold it open-handedly. He might want to pass it on to somebody else. Jesus sustains his fishermen. And I've put it like that. Sustains his fishermen rather than his people or his disciples or whatever because I want to additionally here steer us towards a particular aspect of how we're pictured in this living parable here. We're all supposed to be fishermen. We're on a task. There's a context here to this. He sustains us in the enterprise of fishing. And there's one extra thing I want to I point out about that. Not just a physical sustaining, but a spiritual sustaining. We've got a great big task to carry on, and he sustains us spiritually in the fishing as well. In here, in our perspective, he sustains us. This is where the first point and the second point connect. You see what he does, how he's the one who provides the catch, and he's going to use that fact to sustain us. Here's what I mean by that. Remember the story about my Muslim friend coming to Christ? What does that story say? That story says Jesus brings in the catch in remarkable, complex, unexpected, fabulous ways. Wow. Who could have worked all that stuff out? Nobody. Jesus does that sort of thing. That's amazing. And as I sit there and look at that surrounding I described there, as I sit there and think about how it's hopeless for me here, he brings that story along and says, actually, it's not hopeless for you. Throw the net in. Look at this. I catch fish in crazy ways. I use soldiers who have no idea who they're actually reaching. Go back a step further. I use people who give Bibles to soldiers, who give Bibles to moms, who give Bibles to sons. Who, they had no idea what they were doing. I teach people English. I put them in places where they can meet English speakers. I work all that out. I'm a really good fisherman. I don't care about the odds. Come fish with me. I'll catch something. That's what that story says. And he tells it to me in that situation to keep me fishing, to sustain my hope in here. He tells that story to you now to sustain your hope a little bit, but that's a little bit detached from you. What stories in your life sustain you? What stories in our congregation sustain you? We're weak at this. We don't, we don't tell stories enough to each other. Perhaps because we don't have the stories to tell. That would be sad. But some of us do have stories to tell. Because I kind of stand at the middle of the congregation. I hear lots of them. But they don't always run through me to everybody else. Talk. Tell your stories. Tell your own story and think about, man, he catches fish in weird ways. Read books. 
hear how God is an effective, fruitful fisherman. You're supposed to look at that, hear this story, and what's supposed to strike you is the sovereignty of God that is effective, unpredictable, and trustworthy. You should look at this and say, that's the Lord and want to flee to Him. It's like Peter did. To want to go be with Him. To respond to Him. He means to sustain you physically, but also especially in the fishing, He means to sustain you spiritually and emotionally. Part of that comes by when we see Him work. See Him bring in the catch. He is the Lord of the catch. He is about bringing in many, many fish. He will not lose a one. Join Him in that work. Trust Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Keep Him at the center of your thinking. He's the one who does it. Let me pray. Lord, I sometimes look around my neighborhood, let alone the world, and think, how can this happen? But you have said in your word that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It will happen. And so I pray, would you place us in this work? Would you motivate us? Would you train us? Would you shape our hearts? Lord, I want to be involved, and I want us to be a church that's involved in your mission. Bringing in the the fish, or as you said elsewhere, bringing in the sheep that are not yet in the fold. They're out there. You have them out there. You go to get them. Take us with you. Shape us to be effective, trusting fishermen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.